You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. We have a lot of work to do. And so uh, I need you to grab your Bible and uh, you can go 1 Peter 3. Um, we're going to start there here in just a second. And then make sure you have a mark in Romans 11 and in Ephesians 5 because you're also going to need that. And so if you'll get those ready to go, that would be great. There are some days, um, or some Sunday mornings when I stand up here to preach that there is a tangible sense of, uh, God, I'm trying to put words or take big, big, massive truths and put words around them to explain them. And God, the only way I can do that is with great help from you. So there are some days that I have just a tangible sense of, God, I really, really need your help today. And this would be one of those days. When I think about the biblical beauty of marriage, the rich meaning that that marriage has in the Bible, um, when I think about my huge hopes for your marriage, um, for my marriage, for our marriages, and then the task of of preaching in such a way where I'm speaking words that are biblically faithful and at the same time personally compelling and convincing to you, um, I I just have a tangible sense of God, we, we need you today. And so as we kind of work through um, some of what the Bible has to say about marriage this morning, uh, I think it would be appropriate for you to to make sure that you're listening well, one, and that you're listening with a posture of prayer before God, really asking God um, to be gracious to our church family. Um, there There are a few things that I probably praise consistently as God, will you please redeem for our church a biblical view of marriage? God, God, will you redeem the way that we think about it, the way we feel about it? Um, God, will you, will you help us see it? Will you wipe away the cultural fog that we have and help us see it like you do? And, and so with that, I just want to, I want to make sure your posture is, is that this morning of God, we, we really, really need a lot of help from you because we really, really, really need a lot of help from God this morning. And so with that, I want to start with two statements and then we're going to jump in. Two statements that are general, that kind of um, hit from a 30,000 foot level, some of where we are with marriage. Here's the first one. I think most of you will agree with this. Number one, marriage needs to be redeemed in our culture. Do you agree with that? Marriage needs to be redeemed in our culture. I think when you just look around, that becomes fairly obvious. And so there's a thousand things you could probably pick on in all that. And and so you could talk about divorce in our culture. Divorce is socially acceptable. It's probably even expected in a lot of marriages when they start. And so it is not a thing outside the bounds. It it is a very normal thing for for our culture. Serial divorce and remarriage is, is perfectly normal. Serial divorce and remarriage. I love what one author called that. Our current version, modern version of polygamy. Totally normal. It's not, people don't bat an eye. That, that is normal to see that or to be around that or to experience that. It's normal. And so we, we could talk about a thousand different things from cohabitation. Um, if you are a lady that's single between 25 and 39, um, one out of four of, of those ladies are living with a partner. Uh, 50 years ago, that was virtually non-existent in culture. And so you can just kind of get a general sense. And listen, we don't have to, to pound away at a thousand different statistics here. You can just look around and ask questions about marriage. And you can see really quickly that culture is not doing a very good job with marriages. Maybe you could ask this question. F- find a marriage that is 30, 40, maybe 50 years into the game, into their marriage. And, and ask this question. Would I want their marriage? 
When I'm 30, 40, 50 years in, well, I want that one. And you're going to see really quickly that there are very few marriages that are that old in marriage that you would say, I would love to have, I would trade places with that one when I'm that far into it. So, so culture has a major problem when it comes to marriage. And listen to one pastor as he addresses this kind of chasm between a biblical vision of marriage and our cultures. It's going to be up on the screen for you. He says this, There never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and has always been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and the permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such a low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous. And wouldn't you agree with that? I think when you unpack a biblical vision of marriage into our culture, it seems ridiculous. I mean, it seems, are, are you serious? That seems so outdated and unpractical. And he goes on to say, that was the case in Jesus's day as well. When Jesus gave a glimpse of the, of the magnificent view of marriage that God willed for his people, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry, Matthew nineteen ten. In other words, Christ's vision of the meaning of marriage was so enormously different from the disciples that they could not even imagine it being a good thing. If that was the case then in the sober Jewish world in which they lived, how much more will the the magnificence of marriage in the mind of God seem unintelligible in a modern Western culture where the main idol is self and its main doctrine is autonomy and its central act of worship is being entertained and its three main shrines are the television, the internet, and the cinema and its most sacred idol is the uninhibited act of sexual intercourse. Such a culture will find the glory of marriage in the mind of Jesus virtually incomprehensible. And I think that's true for our culture. That our culture is in desperate need of a vision and a, and a view of marriage that is redeemed. But I wish I could say that was the biggest problem as it relates to marriage. I think the bigger problem is that marriage needs to be redeemed in our churches. People that walk in and out every week on a Sunday morning, it needs to be redeemed there. Um, If you are a Christian, God has given you this unique role and he has commissioned you to show culture what marriage could be and should be and can be. But but here is so often the truth within the church that that rather than living in this, this commission of God to show the world the gospel through their marriage, rather than going that route, most of the church is enculturated. You know what enculturated means? It means that the way we view life is more like culture than God views it. So so the way that we view the world, the way we view things is more reflective of how our culture views those things and how God views those things. So, So when it applies to marriage, that we have been enculturated. That the way we as Christians, as, as the church, think about marriage, view marriage, stay in marriage, counsel marriage, operate in marriage, pursue in marriage, cherish in marriage, nourish each other in marriage. The way all of that happens is more reflective of the culture than, than, than Jesus and his view of marriage. That, that we've been so enculturated to the point that the, the view of Jesus seems even incomprehensible to us, even outdated like unpractical to the church, not just the culture. 
It's funny to me, I, I get the opportunity to do a lot of weddings and they all start with something similar. Um, the, the groom and I and his kind of entourage come up on stage. The bridesmaid do their thing. They come down the center aisle and here comes um, a dad with, with his daughter and, and the bride. They walk down the aisle. I ask the, the dad, who gives this woman to be wed? And he says, her mother and I, and they do the little exchange, and we walk up on stage, and the first thing I do is talk, and this is every wedding that I do, I talk to the people that are witnessing the wedding, and I tell them that they have a huge responsibility on a day like this to help this couple, to encourage this couple, and to pray for this couple, um, that they they will be good representatives of the covenant that they're making, that that they will be actually fulfilling these vows that they're going to, they're undertaking today. And and one of the things I always encourage the the audience around the couple to pray, the first thing I ask them to pray is that their marriage would be very abnormal. And it almost strikes people as odd to pray that. But can we all just look around and admit that we would like an abnormal marriage, that you do not want a normal one? See, this is the idea. Even in the church, I'm, pr- I'm praying this for our, our couples, that they would have a very abnormal marriage, that it would not be normal in any way, shape, or form in the way they pursue, in the way they love, in the way they do everything in regards to marriage, that it would be an abnormal thing. Because the enculturation ha- has, has filtered into us. You should assume that you have been enculturated to some degree, varying degrees across the room. And and so here's the angst kind of really throughout the month of January is that maybe God would wipe the haze of culture away from our eyes and walk us into the biblical beauty of marriage, that it might be restored and redeemed and rescued in us, that our dreams and our hopes and our heart toward our marriages might change in this room, That, that, that God would do that. He would lift the scales from our eyes so we could see these things. Okay, now with that, I just want to make one, uh, I just want to plead one thing with you as we kind of get rolling in this. I would anticipate over the next few weeks for, for really everyone in the room, because I don't know a perfect husband and I don't know a perfect wife in this room. I, I would anticipate that, that there are going to be some things that God wants to do in you and in your marriage. And here's what I'm going to plead with you, is that you would not be defensive. You would not run from God. You, you would not um, put up a, a, you know, a, a wall to God. You would not do that. But, but you would be willing and ready to, to, to lay on God's surgical table while he takes the scalpel of his word to go to work on you. And listen, every surgery is painful, right? You're going to cut through nerves. Guts are going to be exposed. All that's going to happen. But that is the cost to cut cancer out of your body. And it's the cost to cut cancer out of your marriage. And, and so if you're a husband in here, I think this is, this is something you need to be praying for yourself. That you will not be defensive. That you will not be excusing sin, putting sin under the... That you will not go there. That you will lie still on God's operating table. And if you're a lady in the room, that that you would be willing to crawl up on that table and to lie still as God takes his word and applies it to your heart. Can we all go there? Listen, I know that you don't have a perfect marriage, so you don't have to act like you do, right? Nobody around you thinks it's perfect. And so maybe for the next few weeks, we could walk in some honesty with one another and before God, and you could get your marriage in good community and actually start to work through the issues that you have because you have them. You have them, right? Okay, so with that said, First Peter. Um, we like to preach through books of the Bible. And so last fall, we started a series in First Peter. We're in like week 14, and we are now to chapter 3. And I want to set the context for where we are and where we're going through the month of, of um, January. Um, but to set the context for First Peter, you have to go back to chapter 2. So look in chapter 2, verse 12. This will give you the context of what Peter is, is doing as he unpacks chapter 3 for us. So in, in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 12, 
It's going to frame the, the, the rest of really First Peter. And here's what Peter is saying. In light of what God has done for you and to you through the work of Jesus, in light of the gospel, if you want to see gospel, you want to see that verse, look back a couple of more verses up. Verse 9, here's what God has done to you. He has, he has made you a chosen people. He has made you a holy priesthood. He has made you a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So in light of what God has done for you and to you through the work of Jesus, now you can, you can live in, you can actually do, verse 12, now you can actually keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what Peter is saying. Here's, here's what frames the rest of First Peter. Peter is saying that that your life, the way you live, it should adorn the gospel. Your life should make the gospel believable. It should demonstrate that the gospel is really true. It should display the the perfection of the gospel, that the wisdom of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, that that your life is meant to do that. I like to say it this way, that your life, here's what Peter's saying, your life, the way you live it, should demand a gospel explanation for it. That's what Peter's saying. The way you live should be demanding a gospel explanation. I, a watching world should look at you and say, I can't believe they would do that. Can't believe it. How, how, why would they do? Why? How? He's saying your life should demand that sort of an explanation for it. Okay, now you asked the question, or if you did, um, what would that sort of life look like? This is what Peter is unpacking. So if you go to verse 13, he is saying that this is what a life that demands a gospel explanation looks like. You submit to, to every human institution. For the Lord's sake, you submit to them. Even, even ungodly ones, you submit to them. Okay, you, you keep going in verse 18 through 25. He's going to say that, that what demands a, a gospel explanation is a person who graciously and patiently endures unjust suffering. That, that demands a gospel explanation when people do that. And then he gets to chapter three and he starts to unpack marriage. He starts to walk us through the intricacies of marriage. And here's what he's saying, that the way that you do marriage, if you're married in the room, the, the way your marriage operates is one of God's gifts to you. For, so your life can, so your life will adorn the gospel. So your life will demand a gospel explanation that the way as a watching world watches your marriage, that, that there should be something in them that says, I cannot, but that's so counterintuitive that they would do that. I cannot believe that they would operate like that. In the, I cannot believe it. How would they do that? Why would they do that? that? That your marriage should scream that. That's what he's saying. Okay, now, now with that, um, he, here's where we're going today and, and over the next few weeks. I'm not touching 1 Peter 3 again today. We're going to come back to that in the upcoming weeks and work through the details of that. I want to take one step back and answer this question today. Why did God give us marriage? What is marriage for? What, what is the meaning of marriage? Why do we have it? Okay, I want to answer that question. And here's why I've got some angst with this question. If you answer that question wrongly, if you do not have a correct answer to that right now, okay, so if you lose sight of this answer, a biblical answer to that question, your marriage is already doomed. You've already got like one nail in the coffin of your marriage. Okay, so, so this question is massively important for you to have a good, firm, solid, biblical answer for. So I want to give you three answers to this question and a few implications underneath each of the, uh, each of the answers. So the question is, what is marriage for? Why, why did God give us marriage? Here's answer number one to that question. Number one, marriage is for the glory of God. Marriage is for the glory of God. If you, if you ask any sort of what is it for question, here is where you always start with the answer. 
This is ultimate in any, what, what is God up to? What is God doing? Why did God do it? This is the ultimate answer to that question. The glory of God. The reason God does what God does is for the glory of God. To set his attributes, who he is, how he works on display for the world to see. So if you read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, here's what you're going you're gonna to see. The bottom line motivator in why God does what God does is the glory of God. So why did God create you? Isaiah 43, 6, for his glory, he created you. Do you know that? That you weren't primarily created to get married. You weren't primarily created to to work in a job. You weren't primarily created to have kids. You weren't primarily created to be a good athlete. You were primarily created, ultimately created to give glory to God. That's why. For, For his glory, that's why. Everything that God does is for his glory. So he creates for his glory. He creates the sun. He creates the stars. He creates moon. He creates the marriage all of it for his glory so so he can put himself on a pedestal so the world can see a God who is ultimately satisfying. That that is why he does everything he does. So, So when you're starting to answer the question, what is marriage for? That answer starts with the glory of God. That, that is what it's for. So Romans 11, if you want to flip there real quick. By the time you get to Romans 11, here's what you're, here's what you're kind of walking into. Paul has spent 11 chapters unpacking the glory of God in saving. That God is a God who saves. And then he gets to the end of chapter 11. And you're, uh, over verse 33, your Bible might have doxology over it. That's a glory statement. So he gets to the end of unpacking all of this about how God saves. And then he busts out in spontaneous praise. And at the end of that, last verse in chapter 11, here's what Paul says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Your life, reason you were created, your marriage. From him, through him, and to him. And, and then he says this, to him, to God, be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1.16 repeats the same thing. That everything is about the glory of God. Everything God does. The reason he saves sometimes, the reason he doesn't. The reason he would spare you tribulation sometimes, and the reason other times he would walk right in the midst of it with you. Everything God does is motivated by the glory of God. That's the ultimate answer to marriage, why God created it. So let me give you two implications of that. Number one, first implication is marriage exists more for God than for you. Do you know that? That your marriage, if you're married or if you are single and you hope to be married someday, your marriage exists more for God than it does for you. Your, maybe you could say it this way. Your marriage is not ultimate. God is ultimate. The glory of God is ultimate. That, that's what's ultimate. There will be a day when your marriage ends and it's no longer. You're not married in heaven. Mark 12, 25. That, it doesn't go there. So, so marriage is ending. Your marriage will last as long as your life lasts. But the glory of God is, is ultimate. It's eternal. So, so marriage exists more for God than it does for you. Hear that. Mar- your marriage exists more for God than it does for you, for your temporal comfort, for your convenience. It exists more for God than for you. Second implication. Implication number two. For your marriage to be God-glorifying, you have to know the God it's intended to glorify. Do do you hear that? If your marriage is going to actually kind of work in what, what it's intended to be for, the glory of God, You have to know the God it's intended to glorify. So maybe I could say it this way. More than you need another book on marriage, here's what you need to know. God. That's what you need supremely. At the top of the list is not another book. More facts about marriage. What you need supremely is to know God. So maybe maybe we could just ask the question. Do you know God? 
And see, here's my assumption that almost everybody in the room, because we're in this crowd, answers yes to that. But, but here's my next assumption, that that yes is very vague and ambiguous. It's got very little meat associated with it, very little substance around it. So, so maybe you could, could, could answer or maybe ask another question. What do you know about that God? So, okay, you say you know God, so what do you know about him? See, if you don't have a rich, full, robust, wide, big, profound answer to that question, then your marriage is not set up to do well. What your marriage needs more than anything else is a breathtaking view of God. You see that? If you're a man in the room and you're married, what your marriage needs more than anything else is for you to have a breathtaking view of God. If you're a lady and you're married, here's what your marriage needs more than anything else is for you to have a big, breathtaking, awe-filled view of God. So when you answer the question, okay, so what do you know about that God? You've got a list of things that follow. That that there is a a spring that kind of bubbles out of you when you start answering that. That that when you think about who this God is, there's a part of you that is in awe of the fact that he's eternal. He's always been, he is, and he will always be. That he has perfect knowledge. Everything that has ever happened or will happen, he knows it perfectly and exactly. That he is ultimately wise. That he takes his knowledge and his power and he governs and and steers everything in good wisdom. Think about the providence of God. that, That he takes every situation on the planet and he is governing that and his sovereignty to his purposes and his plans. And um, think about the justice of God, that, that there will be a day for those that are not in Jesus, not in Christ, that rather than looking at God in the face, they will look to the rocks and ask them to crush them. To so think about the love of God, that he would look at people who are killing him and say, I will willingly die for you. Think about the beauty of God. The beauty is a biblical attribute of God. It's saying that he is the sum total of everything desiresome. So, so if you have kids and you lay them down at night and you kiss them on the forehead, that moment, that sweet moment is an overflow of the beauty of God. A 75 degree spring day is an overflow of the beauty of God. Guys, when you kiss your wife for a long time, that's an overflow of the beauty of God. You see that? Everything that is... is a, desirable to us on, on planet earth is just an overflow and, and a shadow of the beauty of God. And maybe you could think about his grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit that grace. You did nothing to contribute to it, but God set his affection on you. So you, you've got to have a big answer to that question. The, the, the thing your marriage needs more than anything else is a breathtaking view of God. Do you see that? I love what one author said. He said, until there is a passion for the glory of God in the hearts of married people, their marriages will not reflect the glory of God. So so maybe we could ask the question this way. Are you captivated by God? Are you captured by him? Is there something in you that has an awe when you think of God? Is that there for you? And, And I know that for a lot of us in the room this morning, that is not there for you. And so you can't manufacture an awe of God, but here's what you can do. You can repent of not having the appropriate feeling for God, and you can plead with God. You can read his word and plead with God that he would give you that. And maybe that would be the first appropriate step for a lot of us in the room today, is just to get on our knees before God and say, God, would you give me a huge view of you? More than anything else, that's what your marriage needs. Marriage is primarily for the glory of God. Here's the second response to that question. What is marriage for? Response number two. 
Marriage is for your good. It's for your good. Okay, so flip back a couple of chapters to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And and I want to just introduce you to, we talk about this periodically, but I, I just want to introduce you to a huge gospel promise. Here's the gospel promise. That God, if you're in Christ, that God is working everything in your life, good things, bad things, when it rains, when it shines, yesterday, today, tomorrow, he was working everything in your life for your good. Do you know that? If you're in Christ, that's what God is doing, working everything for your good. Look at this in Romans 8, a a verse that many of you will probably know, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a huge gospel promise. That's what enables a, uh, a Joseph. His brothers have sold him into slavery, falsely accused. At the end of that, he can look at his brothers and look at fa- people who false, all, everyone. He can look at them and say, listen, what you intended for evil, God intended that for good. He is working for my good. If you're a son or daughter of God, you need to take that to the bank. That God is working everything in your life for your good. Okay, now the question is, what is your good? See, this is where we get really weird. Is people do not have a good framework to think about, what is actually my good? What would God be actually working toward in my life? And listen to, to how Paul answers that question in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To what? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see what just, he just said there? He is, he is linking your good to your conformity in Jesus. So maybe we could talk about the implication this way. That God's goal for you is Christ-likeness. Do you know that? That is what God is working in you. That's what God is doing in you. That is what God is taking all the situations in your life, and he is working for your Christ-likeness. That's the implication. Okay, marriage is for your good, and he is working all of that for your Christ-likeness. That's what it means for God to work for your good. Okay, so with that, I think we need to take a second to confront a major cultural myth that to varying degrees you have probably bought into. Okay, now I hear this statement a lot of times around when a person wants out of marriage. Okay, so, so th- this is one of the statements I hear all the time as it relates to this whole issue and how this kind of rolls itself out. And ironically, I actually agree with this statement. There's a, there's a way that you can say this statement that would be biblical and good. And there's a way that you could say and something you could mean in this statement that would be anti-biblical and not good. The statement goes like this. But surely God wants my happiness. You ever heard that? Especially involving like maybe a marriage, maybe whatever. Surely God would want me to be happy. Okay, now again, ironically, I actually agree with that statement in one sense. That God is all about your lasting and your eternal happiness. God is all for that. He is working for that. For that good. He is working for that. This is um, Psalms 1611. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there is a sense in which the Bible would come along and say, I affirm that God is actually concerned about and after your lasting and eternal happiness. But when people say that statement, that is not what they mean. There are generally two assumptions underneath that statement that are anti-Bible and anti-gospel. And here it would be maybe two assumptions underneath that statement. One is what they really mean by that statement is God is after my, surely God wants me to be temporally happy. That it is a temporal happiness that they are considering when they make that statement, not a lasting and eternal happiness. And so it is, they have got temporary, immediate gratification involved. Surely right now in this moment, God would want me to be happy. That is, okay, can we just clear the clutter on that? That is not biblical. 
God is not overly concerned with your temporal happiness. If he was, Hebrews 12 would not exist. If he was, he would never, as Hebrews 12 says, discipline his sons and daughters. See, when you, when you discipline your son or daughter, here's what you're saying. I'm going to sacrifice their temporal happiness so they can actually be happy in the long run. Isn't that what discipline is? So when God comes along and disciplines you, he is saying, listen, I am not overly concerned with how happy you are in this moment. I am concerned with how happy you are going to be in eternity. That's what I'm, that's what I'm concerned about. Do, do we see that? He is not overly concerned with your temporal happiness. Now, here's the second assumption in that statement of surely God would want me to be happy. Is, is in that statement, there is an assumption that me not doing what God would want me to do will lead to happiness. Okay, I know that God would say do this, but surely God would want me to be happy as I don't do what he says and I do this. See, it's a way of justifying sin for us. Surely God would want me to be happy means I'm going to disobey God as I get happy over here, as I get this temporal happiness. See, in, in that statement, there is this assumption that I can actually be happy for the long term, joyful for the long term, and disobey God. Anti Bible. Anti, you can't do that. It's, it's not possible to be lastingly happy and disobedient. See, here's what the Bible is going to teach clearly. That if you want lasting joy and you want lasting happiness, this is the only way it happens. Holiness. That is the only way. Happy, lasting happiness and, and joy do not happen on the near side of holiness. They happen on the far side of holiness, on the far side of obedience. And some of you are walking in that right now. You're at, there's a part of you that loves the temporal happiness that you're feeling, but deep down you're absolutely miserable in the middle of it. Lasting happiness never happens apart from holiness. See, the Bible is all about your joy, but it's telling you this. There is one route to lasting joy. That one route, that one road is holiness. That is the only way. So, so for those of us in the room who have bought in that God is about your temporal happiness, can you just hear this? God's not overly concerned with your temporal happiness. He is overly concerned with your Christ-likeness. God is all about your good and your good equals your conformity to Jesus. You actually looking like Jesus looks, responding like Jesus responds. And this is why marriage is such good news. This is why marriage is a good thing for you. This is why. Because marriage is, is one of God's tools to make you Christ-like. Do you see that? Marriage is one of God's primary means of making you a Christ-like person, of conforming you to Jesus. And so maybe, maybe you could uh, think of it in terms of this. I was reading a book um, by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. Okay, now hear this. I'm saying that marriage is about your Christ-likeness. This is God's tool to make you like Jesus. So I'm reading this book, and, and he is writing about kind of a similar point on how marriage is one of God's tools to make you Christ-like. That, that's his point. And he tells a story of a disorienting Saturday morning. And so, so he kind of walks the story along and he says that uh, his wife had the kids out of town. He was married, has been married for many years, had several kids. His wife and kids are all out of town. She had them doing something. And, and he had a Saturday morning where he woke up trying to answer a question that had him totally disoriented. The question was, what am I going to do with this Saturday? How do I want to spend it? And here's why it was disorienting. Because he hadn't asked it in so long. Now, if you're single in the room, you get to ask that question every Saturday morning. If you're married, you've got some kids running around, you don't get to ask that question anymore. 
Do you see this? One of God's primary tools to make you Christ-like is to give you a wife or a husband, some kids to run around you. That, that is one of God's primary tools to pound away, chisel away, crucify selfishness in you. One of God's greatest weapons that he has in his arsenal of tools to make you Christ-like is marriage. Marriage is about, God's gifted it to us to, as a tool in his pocket to make us Christ-like. Do you see that? This is what God is doing with your marriage. And some of us, um, I know right now, you are in a very, very difficult season in your marriage. I know that right now. And I hope that this is encouraging to you to hear this. That your difficulties in marriage are meant by God to conform you to Jesus. That, that, that's, those difficulties that you have right now, God, God is using those. He is working those. He is molding those and shaping those and shaping you in those for your conformity to Jesus. You're good. Your lasting happiness. That's what he's doing in you. The, the reason that God would take a sinful man and join him to a sinful woman and put them in the context of a marriage, the closest human relationship, cause them to live together, to share everything together, become one flesh. The reason he would do all of that is so you can become Christ-like. Those difficulties are, are designed by God for your good, for, you, for your conformity. I was laughing at one pastor. He had, a, uh, he had a person in his church that was just dying to go as a missionary to China. And so I, it seemed like weekly that the guy was like, man, I, I want to go to China. I love the people of China. I want to go to China. And finally, the pastor looked back at him. And he said, you know why you love the people of China? Because you don't know the people of China. You know why you don't talk about your wife in the same way? Because you know your wife. See, this is one of God's greatest means to give you someone that knows you. They know you, you know them. They know your junk, you know their junk. And to call you to be Christ-like in it. To call you to crucify yourself. To display the, the, the love and mercy and grace of Jesus in it. Now, let me ask you the question. Do you believe marriage is for that? Do, is that what you believe marriage is for? Is it for your temporal happiness, for your convenience, for your, or is it for God to make you Christ-like? What is it for? Because here's, here's one of the, my angst this morning is I think a lot of people that walk in and out of church like this, um, they do not believe it's for their Christ-likeness. This is why things like irreconcilable differences and incompatibility are used as kind of basis for walking out of a marriage. Can, can I just tell you that God knows you're incompatible? You're a man, he's a, a woman, man, together, married. It's incompatible. Can we all agree with that? It doesn't work. God knows that. And he's called you to, to walk in, in this sort of relationship together so he can rub off and knock off all these edges in you. So do you believe that about marriage? That the God is out for your Christ-likeness in your marriage. Right now, in difficult season, that's what he's doing in this. Um, I, I heard a pastor tell the story of uh, a, a Puritan pastor. This is several hundred years ago. And uh, the group of pastors in the city got together on a specific day they were going to pray. And one of the pastors that day said, you know what? I think we need to stop and thank God for our spouses. And this particular Puritan pastor who, who was in the crowd that day, he had a notoriously difficult wife. Everyone knew she was difficult. And so after they had finished praying, the guy that kind of initiated praying for their wives came up to this guy and said, this pastor, and said, listen, man, I am so sorry that, that we did that. I hope that didn't offend you. And uh, the Puritan pastor looks back at him and says, offend me. I, I have more to be thankful for than all of you. I have a wife who, who drives me literally to my knees every day. 
Now, okay, so I, I want you to see just what happened right here, though. The, the reason that feels so sarcastic to us, the, the reason we could probably not imagine ourselves making that comment is because we have been enculturated. It is because we really believe it's for our temporal happiness, not our holiness. See, when we get a biblical view of marriage and we start to see what God is up to in our marriage, we can actually make statements like that and believe statements like that. We can actually start to see that even if we've got a notoriously difficult wife, that it might just be to our eternal benefit. See, we can actually start to think like that. It's actually not humorous to us, but it's actually something that's at the bottom of our heart and how we think and how we view our marriage. Can, can you see that? That this is what God is up to for you. And if he has given you a notoriously difficult wife or husband, here is why. You have so much to be thankful for because he is going to use that person to keep you on your knees before him and for your holiness. And that's a good for you. So holiness is for your good. Our marriage is for your good. And let's finish with this one. Ephesians 5. Flip over to Ephesians 5 with me. And by the way, maybe just to end that point, if you're single in the room, marriage idolatry is rampant in our culture. And so people marry all the time uh, because of, of, of comfort and convenience. People marry all the time for that. And I just want to tell you, if that's the reason you want to get married, don't get married. Save yourself the heartache. If, you're, if, you're, if you want to get married because you're lonely today, my recommendation is try a dog first. <laughs> because I'm telling you, if that's your reason for getting married, it is going to supremely disappoint you. If your view of it is not, God, I'm stepping into this marriage knowing it's going to be extremely difficult at times and that you're going to use this for my, my good, my Christ-likeness. If, if that's not your heart as you think about marriage, say no. H hold off. Okay, Ephesians 5, last point. What, why has God given us marriage? In Ephesians 5, if you start in verse 22, Paul is unpacking the, the lady's role, the wife's role in marriage. You get to verse... 25, he starts unpacking the guy's role in marriage. And then when you get down to verse 31, he quotes Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and his mother, and uh, he, he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's saying that this is, marriage is God's doing. It is, this is a God thing. He, he initiated, he created marriage. And then Paul's going to explain what marriage is for. He interprets what happens in Genesis 2. He's explaining, this is why God has gifted us with marriage. Verse 32 in Ephesians 5 says this. This mystery, this whole marriage thing, all that I'm talking about here, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what Paul is saying. That marriage is about, it is for the display of the gospel. Marriage is for the display of the gospel. So, so maybe you could think about what Paul's saying like this, that the reason God has gifted you and I marriage is because he has given us something unique, a unique thing that he has given us in marriage to display God's covenant love to us through Jesus. That, that is why he has given us marriage. Marriage is a metaphor. See, when you watch a person at a wedding get married, that is a faint shadow, a pale picture of a brighter truth. It's a pale picture of God's covenant love to us through Jesus. So marriage, the way you interact in marriage is meant to display God's grace to us, God's mercy to us, God's forgiveness for us, God's pursuit of us, God's initiative with us. It's meant to display how God has loved you through Jesus. 
See, that, that's what marriage is for. It's a metaphor to get at that reality, to show that reality, to present to a watching world that reality. So maybe I could ask this question to you. If, if we stripped everything else away from you, you couldn't say a word about the gospel. What would your marriage show your kids, your friends, your neighborhood about how Christ has loved you? What would your marriage say about that? Men, in the way that you would love and cherish and nurture, what, what would it say about how Christ has loved you? L- ladies, in, in the way that you would respond, in the way that you would run after and pursue, and lo- what would it say about Christ's covenant love to you? See, that, that's, what, that's what marriage is for, to say something about Christ's covenant love, to display the gospel. It's a metaphor with great meaning that has the gospel right at the center of it. And so I, I want to kind of finish up here by giving you two ways that I think that uh, we can display the gospel in our marriage. Two, two ways, two implications here. Number one, <clears throat> one way that we can display the gospel in our marriage is by living in God's design for marriage, by living in God's design. So men, God has given you this unique opportunity in your marriage to display how Christ has loved his church. That's men. And ladies, God has given you this unique and beautiful opportunity to display to the world how the church responds to the love of Jesus for them. Okay, now I want, I want to read through, and we're going to get here in First Peter over the upcoming weeks, but I want to read through because it just says it so explicitly in Ephesians, starting in verse 22. And ladies, I want you to read this first with me. And I want you to see the comparison words, how you are meant to display this unique opportunity to display how the church responds to Jesus. Look at verse 22 and watch for these comparison words. Wives, submit to your own husbands. How? Comparison. As to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Look at this. Even as, comparison word, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as, comparison word, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Ladies, God has given you this beautiful and unique opportunity to show the world how the church responds to the covenant love, the great love of Jesus. See, ladies, if if you are... If you're in a marriage right now and you're contemplating walking out, you're, you're, you're stiff-arming your husband. You are critical of your husband. You are um, negligent. You, you, you don't want anything. You just stepped away from it. If, if that's you in your marriage, and here's what you're saying to the world. That, that God's covenant love to me through Jesus is not satisfying. But when you stick in your marriage, when you love him regardless of his love for you, when you pursue him, when you, when you respond appropriately to him, when you live in this role, that God has given you, here's what you show the world. That Christ's love is ultimately satisfying. He is of supreme worth to me. He is good to me. Do you see that? That how you respond to your husband has the gospel at stake. Men, look, look at the comparison words for you, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See that as Christ, see there's comparison. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 28, comparison. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Comparison. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Men, God has given you this unique opportunity to display how God loves his bride. 
So, so men, if you walk out on your marriage, if you stiff arm your wife, if you um, are passive in your leadership in the home, if you are a domineering tyrant in the home, you are distorting the picture of Jesus and the bride. But when, when you walk in covenant love with your wife, when, when you pursue her, when you initiate, when, when you reject passivity, when, when you do that, you are showing how Christ loves his bride. Do you see that? If, if you need a motive for pursuing a great marriage, for not sweeping sin under the rug, but for, for pursuing a great marriage right now in this moment, if you need a motive, you just want one, here's the motive. The gospel is at stake in your marriage. You are preaching the gospel through it. So if you need a motive for doing whatever it takes to get your marriage on the right track, that's it. So, so one is living in the design of God for marriage. Second way that we can display the gospel in our marriage goes like this. By staying together. By staying together. Now listen, I'm not saying all I could on this topic, but I'm saying all I can in one really long sermon, right? And so um, if you need one reason to stay together, one, if you just want one, one reason to stay together, n- no other reason, but this one is, is sufficient. You staying together shows and displays that Christ keeps with his people. You staying together in marriage shows that Jesus not only pursues his bride, woos that bride, proposes to that bride, marries that bride, but but you are showing that in Christ, his covenant to his people, that he never forsakes his bride. If you need one reason for staying together, that's enough. That God pursues his bride through his son and he doesn't forsake them. And, and again, I, I, I know that for some in this room, if you're in a, in a especially dark and difficult place right now, that, that these words can be really hard. I, I know that. And I hope that at the same time, this is really encouraging for you to hear this next statement. That in the darkest days of your marriage, you have the greatest opportunity for gospel display. With notoriously difficult spouse, you have a unique opportunity for gospel display. Darker the marriage equals the greatest opportunity for a bright gospel light to shine. Maybe you could think of it this way, that that if you've got a dark room, a small light goes a long way, doesn't it? And see, guys, um, hear this. No one is impressed if you've got a perfect wife and you love her well. No one's impressed by that. Anyone can do that. But, but here is what is impressive to the world. is when a person, let's just say a man in this case, when a man has a notoriously difficult wife, she doesn't love him, she gives nothing to him. She, she has no, there is nothing in her that, that is reciprocating any sort of love toward him. She is, for all purposes, walked out on him. When that man looks at that bride and says, I don't care what you do, I am going to pursue you. I am in, my chips are in, and here's why. Because God has loved me that way. I'm not forsaking you, I'm not turning my back on you. The darker this gets, the the more persistent I'm going to be here. And, And here's the truth for our culture and even in the church. That it's just at that moment when we've got this beautiful opportunity for gospel display that most people say, I'm out. If that's how they're gonna act, I'm out. If that's how they're going to act, then, then I'm done. I, I don't love them anymore. I've lost my feelings for them. I, I've fallen out of love. And can I just say that I think this would be the appropriate response to the person in that situation from the church, that your love for them is not decisive. 
That this would be the appropriate response when you say, I, I'm out. They, they don't love me. I'm, I'm out. I'm pulling out. I don't love them anymore. The appropriate response from the church would be this. Who cares if you don't love them anymore? Who cares? That is not decisive in your marriage. Your love for them right now, the fleeting little, little feeling of, that is not decisive. How you feel in this moment is not decisive. What is decisive is Christ's covenant love to you. That's decisive. And maybe, may we get there. Can, can we just hear this one more time? That what is decisive in your marriage is not how you feel about your spouse. What is decisive in marriage is Christ's covenant love to you. That, that's decisive. That you are intended by God. He's commissioned you in your marriage to show the world Christ's covenant love to you. Okay, so um, when, when you hear this, um, th- there's a big part of me that says that's impossible. Like the disciples, should we even marry then? And, and so the question is, how are you going to do that? How are you going to walk in this pattern of Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3? How, how are you going to walk in that pattern? Can I just say the only way that's going to happen? The gospel is your only hope. For, for you to know what God has done for you and to you through the work of Jesus, that he has adopted you, that he has justified you, that, that he has come after you. He has taken an unlovely bride and made her lovely. You, you've got to know that. The gospel is your only hope. The gospel is what creates the capacity in you. It, it's what creates the capacity in you to, to, to follow the pattern that God has set for you in marriage. The gospel is the only way that you will have the power to walk in this pattern. You have got to know this about yourself, that you were an unlovely bride that could give nothing to Jesus. You had nothing to offer him. You contributed nothing to that. You were an enemy of his. You forsook him. You walked out on him. You committed adultery on him. He looked at you and he said, I want them. I've set my love on them. I am pursuing them. I am coming after them. I have wooed them in. I have married them. And I am promising never to forsake them. And when that starts to settle deep in your heart, sink deep in your heart, forgiveness will no longer be shallow. When that starts to sink deep in your heart, it will keep you from needing too much in your marriage. See, a lot of us need way too much out of our marriage. We're looking to our marriage for meaning and for purpose and significance. When God is saying, I'm giving you all of that. So now in your marriage, you don't have to look to your spouse for all of that. See, in in the gospel, I've given you all that you need. So now even when your spouse gives you absolutely nothing, you can still lay your life down in sacrificial love for her. And can I just tell you, when we start doing that around here, that will demand a gospel explanation. Um, The second thing I tell people to pray when, uh, when we're up front as a wedding starts, first thing is they would have an abnormal marriage. And here's the second one. That their marriage would be a great representation of the marriage, of Christ's covenant love to them. It would be a great representation of the gospel. And can I just say that I pray those things for you, that you would have an abnormal marriage that would be this beautiful picture of how Christ has loved you. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to sit under that and the Holy Spirit just to cement that into you. And anytime we talk about um, an issue like this, specifically marriage, um, I, I think it's important to say um, for many in the room, because I know that when you look back over your past, um, that, that you see a whole list of ways that that you have marred and misrepresented 
Christ's covenant love to you in marriage and relationships and that whole picture. And so I want to encourage you on that, that when you look at your past, you need to look at that redemptively. Here's the, the beautiful thing about grace is it's big enough to cover all of your sin. Past sin, present sin, and future sin. The grace is big enough for that. The grace is greater than all your sin. And so when you look back over your past, you need to look redemptively at it. And for the people that are married in the room, I'm going to tell you one thing here as we we finish. If you've got issues in your marriage, you better not wait until you're in crisis mode with them. See, like, here's what's going to happen over the next few weeks is God's going to reveal some things that need to be changed in you, need to be uprooted in you, some idolatry in you. And this would be the dumbest decision that you could make this month. Is, you know what, I'm going to sweep that under the rug. We'll deal with that later. That would be the dumbest decision that you could make. That would be foolish for you. That is not the way Christ has loved you. So, so you need to make sure you are taking the initiative. If your wife has something to say to you, 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 need, to, you need to give her open season on that. No defensiveness, no justifying sin. You, you, you need to have those sort of conversations. So don't, don't be scraping these things under the rug. If there are issues that the Spirit is, is bringing up in your marriage, and chances are those are all over the place in this room, don't let the sun go down without some conversation on those. Don't put this off. And so I want to finish this morning just by praying for you and for us and our church family that God would be really gracious to our marriages. So God, will you? God, I pray for great courage with many of the men in our room. God, that, uh, that you would give them the courage to repent and to run after you as you reveal sin in their life and dysfunction in them. God, that you would tear down any defensiveness that might be there. And for our ladies in the room, that you'd do the same. God, that you would give them a willing spirit to repent. And God, I pray that you might cultivate and create beautiful marriages in this place. That you might redeem marriage for many of us in the room so that it would be a beautiful display of how you have loved us. And so by, by your grace, will you do that? God, I pray that as, the, as, as, we, as we all put our relationships in good community through our home groups, God, that you would give us a real, a real willingness to allow people to speak into that. God, I pray for for your spirit to just blow some people up in this room. God, will you do that for us? God, might, might you do that? And as we respond today, God, I pray that you might lead us toward repentance. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. You stand Thank up? you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.